Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello everyone, I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Law Review is B.B. Fell. She's an incredibly talented trial lawyer and founder of the Fell Law Firm in San Diego, California. Her practice focuses on catastrophic personal injury, sexual assault, medical malpractice, employment, and business litigation. She's one of the few women attorneys to have received a verdict of over $100 million as lead trial counsel. In 2018, she was one of the three finalists for Consumer Attorney of San Diego's Trial Lawyer of the Year Award. She's been selected to be a member of the National Trial Lawyers Top 100 Trial Lawyers, Daily Journal's Top 100 Women Lawyers, Super Lawyers. Some of her noteworthy results include a $105 million verdict in a medical fraud case where she served as lead trial counsel, $15 million wage and hour class action settlement, $5.3 million settlement in a wrongful death case, a $5 million settlement in a medical malpractice case, $5 million settlement for a boy hit while riding a bicycle. She's got uh, a long litany of other things that would take me a long time if I read it all, but those are some highlights, and I'm thrilled to have her as a guest on Trial or Review. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the practice of law stuff, uh, I wanted to ask what it's like in a household with three daughters, two of whom are teens, uh, from what I can tell. Uh, I've got two daughters myself. They're, they're a little bit older uh, and a son. So three is challenging uh, at times, but fun. What, what's, how, how do you manage all of that and be a trial lawyer? I, uh, I have a lot of fun with my kids and I think the reason that I um, am not crazy stressed out about my home life is that I really give my kids room to just be kids um, and imperfect. And I don't put a whole lot of um, stress on them or high expectations on them. You know, I think I get that from my father. Uh, he always told me, look, as long as you've tried your best, it's good enough for me. And so that's my approach with my girls. Is as long as you've tried your best, it's good enough for me. Um, which I think leads to a much smoother relationship. <laughs> yeah, I, I always took that kind of mindset and, and try to, you know, give them the encouragement, but not try to put incredible stress on them to perform because they're all so different. I know, I mean, all three of my kids are just incredibly different people and different skill sets, and it's fun to watch that bloom. That's so true of my girls as well. My oldest is the creative sweetheart, um, very empathetic. And my second is super 
type A personality. If it's not an A plus, it's not good enough. She puts a ton of stress on herself. And then my little one, my five-year-old is just big personality and does everything big and dramatic. <laughs> so can you tell yet if any of them you think will follow in your footsteps and go to law school? My oldest had said, absolutely not. She wants to do something creative. She is, um, and has been for a long time, really passionate about film. So she would really like to go into the film industry. Um, my second daughter, Alexa, has wanted to be a lawyer since she was four years old and has taken like a huge interest in my business in learning the business and wants to make sure that she's on the trajectory to go to a really good law school. And then my littlest one, um, as of recent, really wants to be a nurse. And there is no pushing her off that. I've tried to suggest like, oh, oh, you mean you want to be a doctor? And she's like, no, no, mom, I want to be a nurse. My, my oldest daughter is a nurse and uh, she went to the University of Florida and has been a nurse at Shands ever since she graduated. And just now has decided to go back to become a nurse anesthetist, which, uh, you know, I was, I was really in favor of that because I felt like it was such a great career choice. Um, as a woman, if you're going to have a family, it gives you a little more flexibility because right now, you know, she works in the pediatric cardiac ICU nights, mm -hmm. which is, I don't even know how she does it, frankly, while trying to get into, into the school, you know, to get further a career. It, it's, that's tough. It's a tough life if you're working in a hospital, but you know, we need nurses and uh, there are shortages in that area. So it's probably not a bad career choice. It's just a tough one. Yeah, it's, it's not a bad career choice at all. My mother is a nurse. Uh, my sister-in-law is a nurse. And so, um, you know, the thing about being a nurse is that you are always able to look back on your day and say, I helped somebody today and there will never be a shortage of need for nurses. Very true. And, you know, we're lucky, both of us, to be in a, a profession where you get to say that as well, which is which is nice, which sort of leads me into the next question. I, I know from doing some background research on you that your dad was a lawyer and you've got four generations of lawyers in your family. Um, and you grew up around the law and knowing since age four you wanted to be a lawyer but what was the single biggest reason for you making the practice uh, of law your career and becoming a trial lawyer ultimately yeah so it's it's funny because um at age four i decided i wanted to be a lawyer and i i never questioned it i never questioned it i never wavered there was no other profession that ever sort of snuck its way into my mind it was just a given that I was going to be a lawyer. And because I come from a family of trial lawyers, that's the only type of lawyer I really understood existed. So when I said I wanted to be a lawyer, I meant I want to be in the courtroom trying cases in front of juries. Um, when I look back on that, you know, what what gave me that huge passion at such an early age? Um, you know, as a four year old, you don't understand very much about what lawyers actually do. Um, frankly, as a high schooler, I can't say I really understood what a lawyer did. Um, so what I did understand, though, was that my dad loved what he did, that he was respected in the community, and that he was passionate about whatever it was he did all day long. That's what I wanted. 
it's funny. It's such a such a different experience. I I never knew that I wanted to go to law school and decided to go to law school um, after pursuing an undergraduate degree in psychology. After I had an advisor suggest, why don't you consider going to law school? And I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> it's it's interesting to hear that that other perspective, but you know, in the end, I think most people that get into it have that you know that desire for that that passion in their lives, which for many, you know, walking into a courtroom is, is something that really is, you know, it, it, it helps you uh, fill that that need in yourself to be able to do that. And if you've got that passion to help people, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do both of those. Yeah. And I'm a, an adrenaline junkie at heart. Um, but I'm not the kind of adrenaline junkie that's going to jump off of a plane. I mean, I actually hate heights. So my husband can do that. He can jump out of planes and jump off of cliffs. For me, um, because I'm actually kind of introverted and shy by personality, like walking into a courtroom and talking to people gives me an adrenaline rush. And I keep coming back for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've got that similar profile. I. But I'm, I'm a cyclist and so bike racing for me for years was that, you know, that that satisfying that need for speed. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, getting that too, because I, I do feel that way, you know, I'm more reserved. And when I when I've gone into court and I still I've got a law practice that's separate from synergy. So I do still handle things. Um, and when I do that, there is that bit of adrenaline rush. Uh, of, of being able to, to experience that when I'm doing something in court. So I, I get that completely. What, uh, what was the primary thing that attracted you ultimately to starting your own firm? I saw, you know, from your, your background that you had practiced with a big firm um, and then went to a personal injury firm practice and then ultimately now your own practice. What, what was the, the primary thing that made you decide that you wanted to do that? Autonomy. Um, I wanted to have control over my own cases. I wanted to try my cases the way I wanted to try them. I wanted to be able to take cases and try cases, even if, you know, nobody else agreed that I should take it and try it, even if it wasn't for the money, it was for the principal. Um, and I wanted to have a little bit more command over my own destiny. And when you work for somebody else, there's always going to be a huge element of your own decision making that you have to give up. So for me, at the end of the day, it was the autonomy, the freedom to take the kind of cases I wanted to work with the people that I wanted to handle the matters that were important to me and uh, collaborate with other lawyers, you know, things that I, I couldn't really decide to do um, on my own when I worked for someone. Yeah, so you're you're more entrepreneurial like me. I I love I love that freedom, that charting your course and being being the one that controls that. I that was one of the things I didn't like about practicing right out of law school was you know being an associate, being told what to do and how to do it and when to do it. That's that's tough coming from a background. For me, my family started their own business, and so I I always saw that as ultimately what what I thought I wanted to do, which it turns out is what I did and, and don't regret that decision uh, yeah. a day. So I, I completely, completely understand where you're coming from on that. So uh, 
I know you've got your law firm. Uh, I see in your background you've got Athea. What what is Athea Trial Lawyers, and why is that important to you? Yeah, so uh, Athea is a great example of what I was just talking about: is the freedom to collaborate. So all uh, six of us have our own firm, and we run our own law firms. But we all have for a long time had a huge amount of respect for each other. And um, I'll even say, at least for me, you know, awe of these other women. The, the women who are now my partners in Athea were my heroes uh, when I was coming up in the law. And we started speaking at the same conferences, um, watching each other, learning from each other. And so uh, Debbie Chang, shortly after I started my own firm, contacted me and she said, I want to bring the six best female trial lawyers in the country together to collaborate on cases. And she told me who was gonna be involved. Um, and I didn't really understand it at the time, but I knew that if these women were getting together to do something, I had to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredibly impressive collection of of top female trial lawyers. I mean, it's uh, that's pretty pretty uh, pretty cool that you become part of that. So, how do you guys work together and collaborate? How does that how does that work? So we, um, like I said, we all have our own firms, and we can all decide whether we want to put a case, take a case from our firm, and put it into Athea. And then there are also cases that come straight into Athea that will stay in Athea. Um, so what we do is we take generally the largest of our cases um, or the ones that have the biggest social impact and we'll work on them together and collaborate. We have uh, weekly meetings where we brainstorm, we talk about themes, we talk about um, you know, what's the, what's the biggest issue in the case and how are we going to overcome it? What visuals are, going to, are we going to use to convey you know, what's really important about our damages story or our liability story? And so in addition to, you know, the client getting six phenomenal perspectives, um, each of us has learned so much from the others. Yeah, I... It's a really cool, interesting concept and the, the power of that team being brought to bear in any particular case, particularly ones of importance, seems like just a, a great thing in the end for the client and, and for the legal system and, you know, frankly, for other female attorneys who really ultimately want to follow that same path. Yeah, we have a huge passion in helping the female lawyers in the generation behind us. So working with them on cases, making sure they have the resources that they need, brainstorming with them. I mean, each of us grew up in a legal environment where there weren't that many women who had been there, who had done that, and who on top of it were willing to kind of take you under their wing and to teach you. So I, I think all of us actually learned from men. And part of the reason we grew to love and respect each other so much is because we found that, yeah, we learned some great skills from men, but at the end of the day, like in order to really be our best in trial, we needed to develop, to develop skills and learn from other women and how they handled themselves in a courtroom. 
Yeah, that's it's interesting because I've talked to other female trial attorneys, and it, it is you know you are a minority in in the trial lawyer community. You know, that hopefully will change more and more over time as more women like you are out there in the you know in the courtrooms and in the view uh, to show that that path. Um, I am curious how you developed your niche practice handling the types of cases that you currently handle, you know, and, and how you sort of progressed to the point that you are at today. Yeah. So I guess it involves a little bit of a history lesson in, um, you know, my <laughs> path. I have always been thrilled by the intellectual challenge. Um, I did very well in college, very well in law school, um, have a, a strong intellectual capability, went and worked for Baker McKenzie at the time. It was the largest law firm in the world, handling incredibly complex cases, um, making new law. I think one of our pro bono projects was to draft a constitution for another country. I mean, really high level intellectual work. And I loved it. I mean, it was very fun. Um, what it didn't provide for me, though, is the ability at the end of the day to say, I made the world a better place. I helped somebody in a way that was real and meaningful. Um, so, you know, after, you know, five or six years of doing that, I had the opportunity to take a couple of plaintiff's cases and experience what it was like to represent an individual and change one person's life instead of making a lot of shareholders a little bit of money. Um, and for me, as fun as the intellectual part is, helping somebody and making a real difference in their life, creating at least in a small way, a little legacy, um, just was so much more meaningful. And I felt like I was living my purpose. So um, after finding that out, I went to a plaintiff's firm and I pretty quickly became known as the person who would take the hard cases. So if there was a sticky issue, if there was something that involved a little bit more law and motion work, if there was a case that people were like, I don't know how in the world we're gonna win this, it usually landed on my desk because I felt up for a challenge. So the cases that I've done well on and got, gotten my reputation from are cases that I pretty much got because I was supposed to lose them. <laughs> hey, that's that's a good reputation to have, that you, the ones you were supposed to lose, you're winning, right? So. That that's funny. yeah, but don't get me wrong. I love I love an easy case too. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to be uh, swimming upstream on every single case in your workload. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, with handling catastrophic cases, what are the top three things that you do to empathize with clients to ultimately tell their story to the jury? I think it's all about the amount of time that you spend with them and taking a genuine interest in somebody else's life. I mean, I think that there is a personality type for every type of the law. And if your personality type doesn't fit that area of the law that you're practicing in, you may be good, but you're never gonna be great. Um, you may tolerate your job, but you're never gonna love it and really be passionate for it. I feel lucky. I mean, I, I am very passionate about people. Um, if I, you know, in hindsight, could have given myself another option of career, it probably would have been therapist. 
Um, all my clients have my cell phone number. They call me for all sorts of things. And after their case is over, our relationship is not over. So um, I really enjoy getting to know them, getting to know their family, looking through photo albums, and truly understanding how one event has changed their life. And I think it comes through in the courtroom. You know, you can't, you can't fake anything in front of 12 people and expect it not to be discovered. And so when I'm talking about my client in a courtroom, I'm talking about someone I care about and, and a case that I believe in. And I think that shows. You know, it's uh, interesting with what we do, you know, I've tried to instill that idea, that empathy idea across every aspect of what we do, because I feel like if we're fighting a lien or protecting somebody's government benefits or helping them on the financial side of things, understanding what they've been through and knowing that you have that massive opportunity to positively impact them by what you do is so important to keep at the forefront of uh, our group. And that's, I, I've everybody that's been on this podcast, I've asked about that. And it's a very common theme. You know, it's this idea for trial lawyers really getting to know that client to be able to, to feel and, you know, then be able to communicate that ultimately to the jury. Right. So I wanted to talk to you about the, the medical fraud case that you handled, which resulted in that $105 million verdict. It seems like an incredibly crazy set of facts and story. Uh, could you briefly, for our listeners, highlight a couple of the important points about your client and what had happened in that case? Sure. Um, so my, yeah, my client was Don Kelly, um, and the defendant was Robert Young. Robert Young is somebody who got a mail-in, you know, science degree and held himself out to be a doctor. He actually called himself a doctor. He was not licensed. Um, and he made his money by defrauding people who are in the most uh, vulnerable position that they'll ever be in in their entire lives. People who have gotten a cancer diagnosis or their family members who have a cancer diagnosis. And, and most of his victims had been told that they were terminal and that there was no you know, traditional medical treatment available left to them. And so he concocted a theory that is not based on any science to sell smoothies and exercise regimens and ultimately, um, you know, for those who could afford it, he would charge them $3,000 a night to come and stay at his ranch in San Diego, where he would uh, give them a diet that was alkaline. And what's, what's particularly horrible about this man is, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's bad to give somebody hope, right? And I don't think that a, a, a diet of fruits and vegetables is bad. Um, but what he did was he took it to an extreme where he was actually torturing people. So he would tell them, you know, don't, don't go to your medical doctor because they're going to give you things that are going to kill you. Don't talk to your family because they don't understand and they're going to push you into doing treatments that are going to kill you. Um, don't take your pain medicine because your pain medicine 
will result in your body not being alkaline and then your cancer is going to flourish. Um, if it was going poorly, he would tell his patients that it was because of their stinking thinking that they were sick. In other words, he's, he's telling people that their cancer is a result of their own thoughts. It was a very cultish environment. So Don Kelly was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer, got sucked into this cult, um, really devoted her life. She left, she had a young child and she left him to come and live at the ranch. She thought she was saving her life when really what had happened over the years that she was involved with Robert Young was that she gave up any opportunity for a cure. Um, at stage one breast cancer, she could have had a surgery and achieved cure. But before she was able to get that kind of intervention, he had sunk his claws into her and years went by to where she was stage four, non-curable. And at the time of trial, her doctor gave her only four more years to live. A horrible, horrible case. So ultimately that case results in that, that large verdict. And, you know, for, for you and for that client, what, what did that feel like ultimately? Yeah. Um, I think the most amazing moment in the courtroom was when the jury read the very end of the verdict form where it talks about apportionment, apportionment of liability between the defendant and, and my client. And the defense in that case was that it was a her own fault. And so this is a woman who was bearing that burden as she looked at her eight-year-old son, knowing that he was going to live a lot of his childhood without a mother. Um, and and she actually had three older kids as well and their father had passed away so knowing that her three older kids she was leaving them not only without a mother but without any parent so she shouldered a lot of blame um, in cross-examination she was asked whether she took any responsibility and she said yes every day of my life and that was absolutely true i mean she took responsibility a hundred percent of the responsibility instead of instead of putting the responsibility where it belonged. And so um, that last question on apportionment, before the judge read it, every single person on that jury looked over at her while the judge read that the jury found her just 0% responsible. And I think for her, that was life altering because it's 12 people telling her, Don, it's not your fault. impactful. I wanted to ask you about the um, settlement for the child that was struck while riding his bicycle. Um, since that's something, unfortunately, I can relate to you after being hit while cycling in 2016. Can you talk a little bit about your representation of that family? Yeah, um, that was a really emotionally difficult case for me to work on. Uh, it was a, a very poor family. Um, and this you know, 17 year old boy was riding his bike on his way to school and got hit by a truck. Um, his, his trajectory based on his education and you know, the way that his family lived and the kind of exposure he had to different types of jobs was probably gonna be manual labor. 
and so this incident really took from him the rest of his life. I mean, it didn't take his life, but it took from him everything that was in store for him at that time. So it was really, um, I felt like I was fighting for him in a way that you might fight for somebody who was hanging on to life. Yeah. We ended up doing very well for him, um, but it was really important that at such a, a young age that he take that money and use it in a way that was going to help him for the rest of his life. Um, because at that age, I don't think people really truly understand um, that even millions of dollars doesn't get you the next 70 years unless you invest it really wisely. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, I was, you know, done this for about 17 years at the time of my accident. And still, you know, I knew that I was going to have future medical and um, issues as it relates to the injuries that I sustained. So I had to, you know, for myself, think about all those things that I had advised clients over my career about. And as you said, for, for someone in that situation, whether you're highly educated or lower socioeconomic, no matter what, those those questions are important questions to address and answer and make sure ultimately that that client is protected because you know no matter what they get, typically it's never it's never truly enough. I've seen so many cases where people get five million and someone on the outside says, oh, wow, that's just a lot of money, but yet their life care plan might be 30 million or 50 million or 100 million. You know, that five million is is going to be insufficient to, to care for that person for the rest of their life, unfortunately. It's not a win. Right. So uh, right. I, I saw from your background that you teach uh, young lawyers and law students about how to work up and try cases. What are uh, the reasons that you um, do that? What, what, what's, the, what's important to you about doing that? Yeah, I, I started teaching um, in part to fill my urge and desire to be in a courtroom. Um, you know, until you've tried a certain number of cases, you're not going to be trying that many cases. And so I was still early on in my career when I had my first opportunity to teach. I hadn't tried many cases. If I tried one case a year, it was, you know, exciting and a good year. And I could call myself a trial lawyer for that year. And really my urge, like what I find inside me is that if I don't try a case a quarter, I start to get that itch. <laughs> And so when I got the opportunity to teach, it kind of scratched that itch. <laughs> and so if I wasn't trying a case every quarter or a case every couple of months, then I could still at least go and be with students in front of you know an audience, practicing my trial skills and teaching other people how to do it. So that's, that's why I started out doing it. It was um, largely self-interested, mostly I enjoyed it. Uh, but what I've found is that it's also really fulfilling um, to build these relationships with these young lawyers. Um, I get phone calls from young lawyers who, you know, say, you know, oh, professor, you taught me six years ago, seven years ago, and I just ran across this question. Um, and, and I love that. I love that connection. 
everyone who, um, every lawyer who's worked for me, I have taught at some point. And so I love seeing them develop. So briefly, can you highlight a couple of important points about the trial lawyer associations that you're involved with, like ABOTA, Alliance of Women Trial Lawyers, CALA, and why you're part of them? Yeah. So um, ABOTA has been a long time, you know, passion of mine. Uh, my father was invited into ABOTA um, and, you know, had talked to me very early on about the prestige of the organization and how um, it, its focus was not just on lawyering for the sake of the lawyer or lawyering for the sake of the client, but it's on lawyering as a profession and the civility and professionalism that we should be exhibiting towards one another and how do we advance the profession in terms of how we handle the rule of law and how do we use our collective voice in order to make sure that trial by jury doesn't go away so all things that were very important to me ideologically when i entered the law um, those are things that ABOTA stands for and then very early on in my career after i had tried just a couple of cases i went to the ABOTA trial college and I found that the quality of the people was everything I expected. I mean, wonderful mentors, wonderful trial lawyers, people who really cared about each other. I mean, we're talking, this was like 12, 14 years ago. And some of the people I met at that conference are some of my closest and dearest friends now. Um, and so that, that really gave me like a, a personal love for the organization. I went back every couple years to teach at the trial college until I was eventually um, admitted to a boat of myself, which for me was a great day. Um, the Alliance of Women Trial Lawyers for me I, is a, a, an organization I'm really passionate about um, because again, like I feel like I had to learn how to try cases from men. I learned some things and that was okay, but it wasn't until I started to see other women in the courtroom and learn from other women that I really developed my own voice and my own style, something that was truly authentic to me that felt 100% right in the courtroom instead of that I was just trying to imitate somebody I would never be. And so it's important for me to be involved in, other, in an organization with other women where we can give other women coming up that same experience as well as learn from each other and develop a network where we're able to refer cases to each other and help each other um, in strategical things. So the last uh, couple of organizations you asked about kind of fall into the category of um, you know, plaintiff's trial lawyers organizations. We are at a disadvantage as a plaintiff's trial lawyer if we are not involved in our local trial lawyer organization. The defense has a big firm behind them, a big insurance company behind them. They've got resources. They've got, you know, charts of data on how cases go. They have motions already drafted. I mean, they have this arsenal, um, given the way that they practice and that they have one institutional client, that we could never develop as a single solo practitioner or small firm. And so um, if we are not banding together to share resources, to share expert deposition transcripts, then we are absolutely going to be at a disadvantage in every case we work up for trial. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really cool. I, as a lawyer, I get to participate on our listservs here in Florida and some national with AAJ, but seeing that, because basically it's like, having the resources of a big firm behind you because you can ask all your colleagues for 
advice when you're dealing with something that you, you need that that kind of support and horsepower behind you. So it's incredibly important uh, to, to have those organizations out there. So I, I did want to ask you about that because I truly believe that that really sets the plaintiff trial bar apart is how collaborative overall it is. It's really cool to watch that every day when I, when I look at the emails on the listservs. I, I love that about being a plaintiff's lawyer. When I was in big law, everything was competitive. I mean, it was competitive with other firms and it was even competitive within a single office. Um, and so I, I love the collaborative environment and how we can help each other because you know what, if my quote unquote competitor gets a great verdict, that's a verdict I'm gonna be citing to an insurance company later on when I have a similar case saying, hey, look at this verdict. So it really is a way that we all help each other. Yeah. Um, are there one or two or maybe three things you could share with other women trial lawyers who might want to model their career after yours? Yeah, so uh, one of the questions I get all the time from women is, you know, how do you decide when to have a family? How do you decide when to put your career first versus your family first? Um, and I think the answer to that is if it's right for your family, if the time is right for your family, don't make a decision based on your career. Um, I had kids young. And I had kids a little older. So my first daughter was born when I was just a first year associate. And what was great about that was I was a cog in a machine. And when I went on maternity leave, they took me out, they put another cog in and the machine just kept running. I actually got to take a maternity leave. And so I got to spend the time with my daughter. I got to enjoy that maternity leave and not be working the entire time. Um, I didn't have as much money um, so I felt like I was working really hard at home and working really hard at the office, but I had a lot of energy too. So, you know, I look back on that time in my life and I think, you know, that was the right time. And then I had my five-year-old when I was already an established partner at a law firm, trying cases, had uh, responsibilities to the client, and I had a lot more money, a lot more resources. I could get people to come in and help me in the home, which was really nice. Um, but I didn't have as much energy and I didn't really get to take a maternity leave because cases needed my attention. Um, was that the right time? It wasn't the wrong time either. I mean, that worked out. I, I didn't take as much of a maternity leave, but I had help in the home. So it's like women who get really concerned about, okay, well, how many years of practice do I need to be? Where does my career need to be before I can start a family? My message to you is put your family first. Your career will work itself out. There is really not a bad time to have your family. So not limiting it to, to just female trial lawyers, but what's one tip you would give other trial lawyers that's part of your secret to success in the practice of PI law? I, uh, I saw a keynote you gave to a group of law students about the path to success not being straight and success isn't perfection. You said it's resilience, which was really impactful to me. I loved it actually, I just, it was brilliant. Yeah, um, I think we're so hard on ourselves. 
right? We kind of have, especially lawyers with our type A personality, we have this idea of what our life is supposed to look like. And we have these wickets that we're going to hit in three years, five years, 10 years. And when you come out of law school, nobody really tells you that the path to success is anything other than straight up the ladder. Um, and that has not been the experience of any successful woman I know. Um, in fact, I have a panel of women that talks to my law students every year. And, and, and this may be true for men too. I just haven't really uh, surveyed men <laughs> as to whether they went straight up the ladder or had some roundabout path, right? I've surveyed women. And so, you know- Mine was roundabout. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, the, the people who I've talked to, the women who I've talked to had really amazingly interesting paths. Uh, one of my dearest friends and, and a woman who I think is one of the most talented lawyers I've ever seen, you know, she took a number of years off to raise her kids and then went back into big law. And then she took two years off to follow her husband out of the country for his career. And she just stayed home and raised her teenagers at that point. It was completely out of the law came back and went to an insurance defense firm. Then she went into being general counsel. Now she is um, a regional general counsel. And by region, I mean region of countries, plural, uh, for one of the largest corporations in the world. Hugely successful, not even 50 years old. And she had a path that I don't think anyone would imagine would lead to success when you're at the young age of 24. Um, so, I, I mean, I have so many stories of people like that. And really what you're right, what separates the people who succeed from the people who stagnate or drop out is their resilience. Life is going to happen. Curveballs are going to be thrown at you. You are not, there are going to be so many reasons why you don't take that straight path up. Do you give up or do you say, okay, I'm going to make the best out of option B and see where it leads me. And people get so caught up in the idea of, am I making the right choice? When the reality is, for most of us, when we have a choice to make, we're choosing between a number of really good options. So we could take any one of those paths and turn it into something great. Well said. Uh, so last legal question, I, I did leave a, a personal question to the end that I wanted to ask you about, but uh, what's the main trend that you've seen in dealing with issues at settlement? Admittedly, that's that's a bit of a, uh, a self-important question, obviously, for what we do, but just curious whether it's liens or Medicare or dealing with Medi-Cal or what, what are the issues that you see uh, popping up now in your cases when you're resolving them? Yeah, I mean, liens has always, always been and has not become any less of an issue today than it was when I started doing personal injury law. Um, it is the bane of my existence, <laughs> you know, the, and, and it's something that the clients don't understand. You know, they don't understand why their case settled two months ago and they still don't know exactly how many pennies are coming into their pocket because we can't get Medicare to respond, we can't get Medi-Cal to respond, or they did respond and we're going back and forth trying to get reductions. Um, that's not something that a client really understands. Um, and my experience has been that there's not a whole lot of flexibility and it takes, um, it takes an enormous amount of effort 
to get somebody to give a little attention to your case to understand why your client is entitled to a reduction here, why this particular type of treatment is not um, related. So I'll just give an example because this is what this is the struggle that I've had recently in a lot of sex abuse cases because I handle sex abuse cases where the perpetrator was a, their physician, their OBGYN, their psychologist, their psychiatrist, people in those positions of trust. Well, both Medicare and Medi-Cal then take the position that all of the treatment, psychological treatment that your client receives thereafter is as a result of the injury and they put a lien on it. Even for your clients who the entire reason they were seeing that psychologist or psychiatrist is because they needed psychological care before they were sexually assaulted. Um, and so, you know, that issue in particular is on my mind because it's, um, it's a very tough issue to explain to a client. It's one that I deal with all the time in those cases. And I feel like I'm just beating my head up against the wall. <laughs> well, you're definitely not alone there. I think that, you know, most lawyers um, struggle with some of the complexities with liens because, you know, to expect a trial lawyer to understand the nuances of ERISA, Medicare, Medi-Cal, BIBA, you know, other military lien types and private, I, I mean, it's, it really is, it, it's tough. And, and it really makes no sense either to throw that onto the back of a trial lawyer because sort of like saying to a trial lawyer, well, you could do a guardianship or you could open up an estate because you're a lawyer, but that doesn't mean that's your area of expertise. There are lawyers that specialize in that. And that's one of the things that I try to educate, you know, generally about is, you know, Hey, these are these are difficult issues as a trial lawyer you've got to be able to issue spot but then know hey there may be others out there who really need to consult either with me or with the injury victim about what to do to make sure that ultimately that client gets the best possible outcome which was you know sort of the the foundation of of creating this company was was giving trial lawyers that resource that one place that has experts that can really help navigate some of those really difficult issues that you guys face when really the, the case is done. It's sort of the case after the case uh, is is kind of how we, we refer to that. Yeah, and let's be real, like those of us who love representing injured people, um, we're not built <laughs> for the lean negotiation stuff. It's just not anything any of us enjoy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, last question is is a personal one. Uh, before we started the podcast, we talked a little bit about it because I wanted to make sure it was a topic that you felt comfortable talking about. Um, so I understand that recently it was, and I, I'm, hopefully I don't butcher this too badly, it was National Hep Hepatoblasma? Uh, Hepatoblastoma. Awareness Day. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, definitely didn't go to medical school. Um, <laughs> Can you talk about what that is and why it's important to you? Yeah, hepatoblastoma is a liver cancer, a malignant liver tumor that affects uh, primarily children under the age of three. It's an incredibly rare cancer affecting only about one in a million children. And so to put that in perspective, in my community in San Diego, we don't even have a million children that live in San Diego. 
So one in a million means maybe there's one in San Diego. It means um, there are less than 100 kids diagnosed with hepatoblastoma a year in the entire United States. Um, it means that, you know, rare cancer means there's not much, much research, which means there's not much understanding, which means there's not advances in treatment, which means people die. I mean, it, it's as simple as that. If it's a rare disease, people are dying because we don't understand it. And it, it's really important to me um, because in January of this year, my five-year-old daughter was diagnosed with um, high risk, which is you know the equivalent of kind of stage four, the way that they stage hepatoblastoma, high risk hepatoblastoma. Um, and the treatment that she's gone through is treatment that has existed for decades. Um, she's using the same drugs that existed 50 years ago. They might tinker a little bit with when the child gets the drugs. They might tinker a little bit with how much the child gets. But there's been, uh, compared to you know other more common types of cancer, there's been very little research on it. We don't really understand why kids get hepatoblastoma. We don't understand why kids, some kids relapse and others don't. We don't know how to save the lives of the 20 to you know, up to 80%, depending on staging, of kids that don't make it. Um, so, you know, if we can increase awareness, I'm hoping that if we can increase awareness, we can increase funding for research and we can save the lives of innocent children. So my understanding is that she is currently in remission um, and that you've created kind of a support system for other moms that are going through all of this? Yeah, um, she was told that she was in remission a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't really understand what that meant. You know, I thought before this journey that remission means it's gone, yay, everybody celebrates, no more treatment. Um, all it means is that there's currently no evidence of the disease. It doesn't mean there isn't microscopic cells that will then continue to grow into cancer. It just means at this very moment, we can't see any. Um, and it doesn't mean the end of the journey either. She will continue to have to go through chemotherapy. And after chemo, she'll have to have very close monitoring because for as advanced as her disease was, there is still a pretty high rate of relapse. Um, when we got the diagnosis, I was looking around for other parents who had been through hepatoblastoma. I found no one. There was nobody in our hospital. There was nobody I could find in California. I tried to research support groups. There was nothing there. Um, I eventually found one Facebook group um, for parents of kids with hepatoblastoma. That is an international group. And even that international collection over decades has less than a thousand people in it. So for me, it was a very lonely journey. It was a very scary journey. It was one where I didn't, I didn't have any understanding of what the next day was gonna look like, much less the next year. And so when I finally was able to connect with someone who had been through a similar journey, um, it was eye-opening. I mean, all of a sudden, our family wasn't totally alone. So it's important to me, now that I've collected a lot of the knowledge that I have, to 
put myself out there as a resource for other families and hopefully um, provide some source of comfort and some source of information. So last question before we wrap up, um, sort of along the lines of that is how do you manage work-life balance as a lawyer and a mom? I, I mean, I guess putting that aside because that, that's got to be all-consuming at least for periods of time, but um, you know, how do you uh, as a female trial lawyer manage everything? You know, I don't think I do. Um, I used to sort of facetiously tell people, um, I don't, I don't manage everything. I do everything a little bit shitty. <laughs> I do everything a little bit junk in case you have to edit that out. <laughs> um, which, you know, made me chuckle a little bit, but that, that reflected how I felt. You know, I felt like I was not as good of a mom as I should be. I felt that I was not as good of an employee as I should be, that I was not as good of a lawyer as I should be because there are only 24 hours in a day and it's a finite pot. If I take from my work to give to my kids, I've taken from my work. If I take from my kids to give to my work, I've taken from my kids, which feels horrible. Um, I think what I've learned over the years though is to give myself a little bit more grace. Um, even though I feel like I'm not a perfect mom or a perfect lawyer, the fact of the matter is I'm pretty darn good at both. Um, I'm really darn good at both. And so I have to accept and be willing to, um, to tell myself, you know what, you're good at that. In your head, you know, oh, well, if I had spent a couple more hours, would I have been better? Maybe. Okay, but I'm still really good at the things that I'm good at. Um, so it's, it's giving myself grace and it's realizing that there is no perfect balance. So you have to find your perfect imbalance. There are going to be periods of time that my life is wildly out of balance because I'm in trial. But that's okay because after that trial is over, my life can be wildly out of balance because I take a vacation with my kids or because I just spend a lot more time with them and I don't go to the office every day. So it's, it's a dynamic situation. You have to be flexible enough to react to what's in front of you and give yourself grace to realize that you will not achieve perfection. And if anybody says that they have, they're lying. Um, so do the best you can and find your perfect imbalance. Uh, that's incredible advice. I, I still struggle admittedly with that giving myself enough grace because it is when you are type A and you know you're you feel like you should be a per, you know, at perfection when you're trying to be a perfectionist but there isn't you just can't achieve it there and as you said that it is perfectly imbalanced uh, at times and it just is what it is. It's tough. It's tough, you know, when, when you're in a high pressure role or career um, and all of that together is, is difficult. So um, thank you for sharing your time and wisdom today. I very much appreciate you, you coming on. I, I do want to make sure that if anyone wants to get in touch with you, has a case to refer to you, um, I'm assuming that your practice is not just limited to San Diego, given what you're doing with Athea, but um, you know certainly you know want to give you the opportunity to have people get in contact with you if they want to uh, work with you. What's the best way to reach out to you? 
Yeah, so my uh, email address is bb, that's B-I-B-I, at fellfirm.com. You could also reach me for nationwide cases at bb at And my phone number is 858-201-3960. Thanks. We'll include that in the show notes for our listeners. So it'll be on the page, webpage for this particular episode of the podcast. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in today to Trial Law Review. And we'll see you next time on the next episode of Trial Law Review. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.